North, south, east, west, left, right, up, down. Directions take us where we need to go. Yet direction is such a versatile word. Whether it's a physical place we're going or an emotional journey, our directions in life can shape who we are as well as our next step in life. Join us today as we give you an in-depth look on direction, from family farms to the hip band that made teen girls scream everywhere. I think I need to do like the same. Hello! Hello. Live um, from- yeah, oh, oh. Awesome. <laughs> okay, great. Sounds like Live from Indiana. Live from, uh, live from Indiana, Indiana University, University in Bloomington. Bloomington. This is- This is hot. It's a hot mic. This is American, American Student, Student Radio. Radio. That's pretty great. Is it like a sound or is it like- Fresh crunching snow. Two hours of finger picking. Very good ASMR content. <laughs> Tragic, but also really beautiful. Hi there. From American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm your host, Max Sandifer. When farmers can't pass on their family-owned farms to the next generation, they have to find new tenants to breathe life into the farm or risk selling out. In this piece by Peeler Brynjarski, Kira Santiago grows flowers on an Illinois farm that has been owned by Dave Bishop's family for generations, and they discuss how the farm thrived in the past, but had to take a new direction to thrive in the future. And you know, in the early spring, it's the Coreopsis, and then it kind of transitions to, there's um, the Beard's Tongue and the um, Black-Eyed Susans and the Purple Cone Flowers and all the different prairie grasses that grow, you know, 10 feet tall. That I go out there and I feel like I'm in a jungle. Peonies and tulips and alliums and peonies and tulips and alliums and tulips and alliums. My family purchased this farm in 1867. We still have the 1868 tax statement from it, and uh, I am fifth generation, I guess. There were peonies in the back and daffodils, and I, you know, picked those peonies that first year and used them in some bouquets, which was really neat. And... So yeah, it's just, it's a farm. It's like any other farm. <laughs> there would have been lots of people who uh, had moved <laughs> off the farm but still kept coming back to, to reclaim some of the old skills, pie baking. And, yeah, uh, butter churning. And <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some stories about how they churned butter on the porch and drying the walnuts too on the, or like oh, laying all the walnuts out. <laughs> Man, that brings back... Uh, when I, when I moved in there, there were already some flowers, and I, um, I knew that was a good sign. There were, <laughs> there were peonies in the back, and tulips, and alliums, and tulips, and alliums, and alliums. Yeah. <laughs> that brings back a lot of memories. I, I remember coming home from school, and there was 50 bushels of apples sitting on a porch, and probably 30 people in the house, you know, uh, making applesauce or whatever. Lots of laughter. I mean, it was just a really wonderful community, happy type experience, you know. And then, then came Earl Butts. And Earl Butts was Richard Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture. And Earl said, all right, guys, get bigger, get out. And I didn't mean much at the time. Nobody really understood that. But uh, that was a glacier. You know, that was this very slow-moving thing that ground up everything in its path. Ground up the fields, the fence rows, the farmsteads, and finally the towns. 
just leveled it. And we didn't realize that at the time. It's not like an explosion. By the time you realized what happened, it's too late. When you pull down the lane, you see the old Civil War era farmhouse and the big Sears Roebuck barn and some of the other outbuildings. But then there's just fields of flowers and different colors and textures. And Farmers were trying to get bigger. Well, the only way you get bigger is you had to take something that was your neighbor's. There's no more land being made out there. And you see this, you know, and you know there's something terribly wrong, but you're really not quite sure what you got to what you can do about it. And alliums and tulips and alliums and alliums, peonies and tulips and alliums and tulips and alliums. The community looked out after itself. If you had kids, somebody was there to look after your kids. You know, these kind of social services were provided in the community. We have to get people back on the land. A whole little community in itself between the chickens and the bees and the flowers and the sear vegetables. So. And you're carrying it on. Bringing it back. Bringing it back. <laughs> My name is Kira Santiago. I am 27 years old and I am renting a farm from Dave Bishop. And my name is Dave Bishop. It came into my life right when I needed it to, and I've been trying to take advantage of that ever since I've been at the farm. It's really easier to talk to young people who have no bad habits to lose than it is to people who have already got a set way of doing things. They have to unlearn that and then learn something new. So you have an advantage of, of not coming with a lot of baggage that you're, you really don't need. I'm a flower farmer, and you forgot to tell me that there were six acres of wildflowers. <laughs> if you would have told me that the first day, I would have been sold. Uh, Beard's Tongue and the Beard's Tongue and the um, Black Eyed Susans and the Purple Cone Flowers and Tulips and Alley. It's hard to even kind of grasp the amount of people that have been in and out of that house, the amount of, you know, happy times, sad times, conversations. Like, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Susans and the purple cone flowers and tulips and alliums and tulips and alliums and alliums and there were peonies in the back. I've never felt lonely out there, even when I've, I've been by myself. This change is going to happen one way or other. There's no alternative to that. And so how it happens... Are we going to sell out to large corporate entities and see more industrialization? You know, is the glacier going to keep moving? Or are we going to change things? Are we going to make an effort to put somebody on that land that's going to follow the ideal that we have in our own heads? And my generation is making those choices voluntarily or involuntarily. By what you do or what you don't do, you make the choice. What a unique and thought-provoking story, Peeler. 
Hopefully Bishop's Farm will prosper for decades upon decades to come as it takes this new direction. In this next piece from Emily Miles, you choose your own direction. Two meaty hands glided over a steering wheel made of leather from a cow born before her dad. Well, she thought her hands were meaty. The old lady who used to watch her after school said her fingers were slender. The girl she'd been seeing said she could be a hand model. She especially liked the scar running along the top knuckle of the left index finger. She traced it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. She sped along Green River Road, a new driver she'd never seen the northernmost point, and she wondered about it. She was just supposed to go to Barnes & Noble, but she took a wrong turn and there was this opportunity. A full tank of gas in her aunt's silver convertible, a cerulean sky. To continue north on Green River, he, he was to turn around and settle and at the bookstore. Skip to 12 minutes and 14 seconds. Past the mall, International Market, and the FedEx store were fields. Fields like out by her house, where stubborn Germans held onto their land. She drove past the corn and the cows, not enough to be cattle. She unironically blasted Iggy Azalea from a mix CD curated by a guy at school. She passed daylight, the town where her childhood pastor was sent, where her mom's store sent unspeakable volumes of carpet and quarter round, where the best Bavarian pizza hid in a brick shack. Then, in a breath, it was gone. She drove and turned onto a highway. It looked like southern Indiana, all right. She turned onto another highway. She had a flip phone, an iPod touch, and a cruise control that slowly slipped away from 70 as the odometer ticked away. No GPS. But then, a green sign. Louisville, 90 miles. She went. She accelerated through Hoosier National Forest, around the perfect tree-lined curves of I-64. She soaked in the sun and the wind turned her sandy waves into a rat's nest. Searing her forehead, twisting her hair, it was freedom. The CD started over. A car full of boys shouted and pointed at her. They weren't mean, just confusing. She nodded and gave them a thumbs up and never learned their intentions. A wrong turn into New Albany allowed for refueling the vehicle so heavy it bore the nickname Der Panzerwagen. Gasoline fumes burned the inside of her nose. A two-hour smile tested the strength of her cheeks. Even as she swiped her parents' chase card at the pump, even as she resigned to getting caught, even as she foresaw her dad's anger and her mother's disappointment, a teen version of Happy Little Crow's Feet She was doing it, with no permission and no questions. Out of nowhere, she traveled to the regionless dreamland of Derby and Catholic high schools and Heine Brothers Coffee. By the same stroke of luck that got her to the city, she maneuvered into the parking lot behind a Bardstown Road micro-roastery. She bought a coffee, punched the Wi-Fi into her iPod, screenshotted the directions home, and took off on foot. By the time she returned, the clouds had gathered. Like an idiot, she turned the key and zoomed away, the ragtop safe and sound in its metal capsule. Lost in Cherokee Park, she let the car roll, nudging the gas pedal with her big toe. Bombay Bicycle Club floated into the dark summer leaves. And there they were. Tiny cloud spittle. Luck, she thought, would carry her. It did not. On I-64, the sky roared, and a downpour came, and a teenager interpreted the no-stopping signs on the side of the road to mean she could not stop to run around her car for 30 seconds and extend the top for protection. She maxed out the speedometer. The aerodynamics of the vehicle kept her remarkably dry, but still her arm hairs spiked as the pressure dropped. She shoved her laptop further under the glove box. Semis halted and turned on their hazards. The girl turned off her music. 
She let the thunder be the bass. The beating rain fell in as a heavenly drum roll. She assumed she would die. To find out what would have happened at Barnes and Noble. Keep listening. To skip to the end. Jump forward to 15 minutes and 27 seconds. She turned around. She wanted the Wi-Fi. After all, Tinder never worked at home, out in the sticks. Her thick tires rubbed gravel into the pavement, crunching, scraping. That's what it felt like to be 17. One big cringe. Inside Barnes & Noble, she swiped and read and browsed and messaged and swiped. There was no cap on swiping right, so again and again and again, she matched. Boys had never paid much attention to her, so this was weird. They asked for pictures of her butt and promised so sweetly to do things that sounded more like threats. She sent internet stock photos and laughed at their advances. And then she matched John. She could tell he was tall, a farm boy in his early 20s, a graduate of a Hoosier college. He appeared to care about the goings-on of her day and about who she was. She was earnest. She was also sad. Sad and ready to drive to Louisville and sleep in her car and maybe get abducted and didn't care. Vincent's is closer, he suggested. It was she conceded. He said he was at the farm, that she could call him upon entering Knox County. She could pull in behind him at the gas station and follow his car back to the farm. She could get out of the car and realize just how tall he was, just how much of a farm boy he was, just how much of a situation she was in. She assumed she would die. They got into her car, this time her in the passenger seat, him left to slide the seat all the way back. He looked like the jolly green giant, except he was white. He zipped around the gravel roads, listening to her talk. These were his roads. This was her time. She talked about the fraught history with her body and homophobia and fear. He asked questions, always qualifying. She didn't have to answer. Yes, he knew she was gay. Yes, he knew she was 17. The sun sank lower and lower, and he returned to her car next to his. He asked how adventurous she felt. Within minutes, he instructed her to keep one hand and one foot firmly planted on the silo ladder. She gripped and climbed and found five feet and four inches too small for the midway platform. He explained the maneuver, wrapped his hands damn near all the way around her hips, and lifted her to the top of the silo. He sat next to her and explained his debilitating fear of heights, his father's more debilitating heart condition, and the way a farm boy has to face things for family. The sun on the horizon, he reached out a truly meaty hand and pointed to each field. He named the crops and the owners until the girl began to shiver. He asked if she liked watermelon. It's my favorite food. He plucked one from the vine, thumping it to ensure quality. She followed him into the barn, caught the glint of a flicking pocket knife. He cut the melon open and gave her the knife. She gripped his hand as he led her through a pitch black room, full of machinery he could see with his memory. Step up, he said. Duck down, he said. He showed her the new tractor, explaining all the gears and knobs. He fired it up. Had she ever been in a semi, he asked? back through the black room and past the half-eaten melon and into the night air. There it was. They got into the sleeping cabin. They stretched out, lying flat in opposite directions. There was silence. And there was trust. Well, he had to go back and take a shift watching the church's big gumbo pot. It was time for the girl to go. She did not die. Finally, on First Avenue, the street on which she could draw her childhood, she opened the door, leaned laterally, and pressed a veiny hand to the damp ground in front of the Burger King, that once served her a mustard sandwich posing as a quarter pounder. Certain that she was alive and real, she leveraged her shoulders upright and drove home on the last of her gas. She petted the dog, changed her shirt, and climbed in the back of her mom's car. The family went out to Olive Garden.
For American Student Radio, I'm Emily Miles. Well, that adventure took an interesting direction. Thank you, Emily, for the amazing storytelling. When's the last time you used cardinal directions? If I asked you to point southeast, could you? Well, Tanmai Madipati will take you across seas to the Pacific Island to talk about a tribe that speaks a language that heavily uses cardinal directions. Hello there. Yes, you. The one listening to me right now. Hi. How are you? Or better yet, can I ask, where are you going? And I'm going to one-up that by asking, what direction are you facing? I know this might seem strange and foreign, but I promise I'm not a creepy stalker. I just wanted to give you some perspective on a civilization that communicates differently than what we are used to. And while it might seem strange at first, after this podcast you realize, hmm, this is actually pretty smart. So listeners of American Student Radio, I'm now going to take a trip across seas to a small island in Australia where we meet the tribe that does not have left or right in their lexicon, but instead, they set their direction to the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. We land at our destination. Pormpura is a small Aboriginal community on the west coast of Cape York Peninsula, Australia. And this tribe speaks a language called Cook Thayore. Cook Thayore is a Pamun language spoken by more than 200 people in this Aboriginal community of Pormpura. Cook Thayore speakers represent time along an absolute east-to-west axis. The way they use cardinal directions is quite complex, but also extremely frequent. With these cardinal directions, they use it in their language by using them as prefixes and suffixes to their words. And by doing so, these complex words now give a holistic explanation because not only does it indicate the direction, but also the range of distance the speaker is, the motion they're coming from, either towards or going against, and if the speaker or object is in a bounded area. Examples of bounded areas include local rivers, a mountain, or even a significant part of their community. In fact, the combination of these words and the importance of cardinal directions had led to one of the community's most frequently used phrases which is translated to English as, where are you going? Instead of greeting with how are you, like we are used to, and the norm of most Western communities who speak English, this small community asks about their whereabouts. And like I explained, Pormpura people usually respond with the direction they are coming from, like southwest, or I'm going southwards towards the river. The terms ka and ku for east and west are defined by the sun's trajectory, while the terms unkar and ipar roughly translate to north and south. Regarding the focal points I talked about, I did more research on other parts of the world to see if there were communities within the Pacific Island area and to see how they also communicate. Another interesting civilization I found was a small community within Bali. The Balinese direction terms also differ from the way Westerners greet. The Balinese have a system called geocentric directional system based on geographic landmarks rather than points on a compass. Similar to the Pormpura community, they use the word kaja, which means uphill. Uphill meaning towards the biggest mountain in the area. The Balinese community, if in view, will use gunung agung, 
which is the biggest volcano placed in the center of the island. So when someone asks where are they going, they set the volcano as their center point and explain uphill in whatever direction they are facing. How I even heard about this community of the Pormpura people speaking Kukthayore was in my Global Business Environments course, where we watched a TED Talk on the effect of language. The lady who conducted the TED Talk mentioned this community and how language is different across seas, but also how using cardinal directions gives a more detailed experience as well. Language does represent who we are, and moreover, the community we are a part of. And after researching more on this tribe, it's clear that language changes the way we think, gives us direction, affects our perception, spatial recognition, and detailed-oriented skills. So the next time you start your GPS route, and it starts off by saying, head southwest on Carmen Avenue, you hopefully want a better understanding of what southwest really is. It's truly amazing the different ways communication and language have evolved throughout the world. Tanmai, thank you for such a compelling story about such a distinctive tribe. Thank you so much for listening to our Directions episode of American Student Radio. Join us in the near future for our final episode of the academic year, fittingly titled, Goodbye. American Student Radio is a student-run podcast at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Thanks to the Media School for support and to Luminatic for the wonderful theme music. If you'd like, follow ASR on Twitter and Instagram at ASR Voice, and you can find us on Facebook. Have a thought? Message us on social media or email us at americanstudentradio at gmail.com. Have a good one, friends. <laughs>